You are listening to Creatively Speaking, presented by Showcase, the first professional social network designed specifically for marketers. Find work, find talent, build teams, and win business. This is Deborah Carney, the Senior Director of Marketing at Showcase. In this episode, I chat with Gary Lancina, CMO of the Luma Institute and former VP of Marketing at Redbox. Gary gives many revealing insights from the client's point of view, including what really makes up an effective ad. Just because it's creative, does that make it any good? Take a listen and then connect with him on Showcase. Gary Lansino, thank you so much for joining our Showcase studios today and talking to our audience. CMO of Luma Institute, would you mind telling us a little bit more about that? Sure. Uh, Luma Institute is a little organization in Pittsburgh uh, focused on helping teams and organizations accelerate their ability to innovate. So you've heard about design consultancies like IDEO and others. We don't do that. We don't build stuff for you. Uh, What we do is we give you the capability to invent and innovate on your own. really focused on design thinking and human-centered design methods. Um, And I've been with them uh, in an advisory role for about five years and a more active role as their chief marketing officer for just over a year. Great. Well, you've had an extensive marketing career at some really great companies like BP, Redbox. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you want to explore that? The thread through my career, and you know, as you you can tell, I I can't hold a job, um, (laughs) has been to uh, accelerate growth. Right? I'm, I'm really somebody who comes in and whether it's a mature business that's kind of stagnated or it's a turnaround or it's a startup in the case of Redbox, uh, what really gets me out of bed in the morning and excited is how I can generate greater competitiveness and greater growth and better results. Uh, so uh, some highlights are probably uh, Redbox obviously came in. It was a small company uh, helping us sustain triple digit growth year on year over and over. Uh, got to the point where we had 50 plus percent same location revenue growth uh, and that's what actually helped us sell the company uh, and also put those guys at Blockbuster out of business. Okay, great. So Gary, my background has always been on the creative side. Mm -hmm. I was a copywriter. Your background is the client side. So so what I'd love to explore today Mm -hmm. is how that process works on your end going from client side and what goes into that when Mm -hmm. you're working with the creative agency? Like how do you go about picking great creative and what Mm -hmm. does great creative mean to a client? (laughs) That's a a big and loaded question. So maybe I'll take the the last part first. Yeah, let's break it down throughout the whole entire What's the role of of good creative endeavors, right? And what are they supposed to do for the business? And I think the, you know, at its essence, I think there are five things that a good ad, whether it's one 30-second ad or it's a campaign, are supposed to accomplish. Right? And the first and foremost is you know, engage the, the viewer or the consumer. right? Get their attention, hold their attention. The second is then communicate your proposition. You've got to get across what it is you're talking about and why sure. it's relevant. Uh, link it to the brand. right? Because we've all seen ads where you, you walk away and you say, well, that was a great ad about this stuff, and I have no idea who it was for. Mm. Um, the fourth is do it in a way that's memorable. So you're not just linking it to the brand, but it's something that people could talk about the next day. And then ideally and most necessarily in a persuasive manner. You really want to affect whether it's a purchase inclination or it's a desirability or it's just a motivation. Um, we got to do all of those things. And if you start to think about different creative activities that you can recall, you've probably got examples where something has failed on all of those. Right? You might remember the brand and you really want it, but you're not quite sure what it is that they were selling. 
right? So you, you know, I, I hear my kids talk about this. Hey, we saw this ad, but we really don't know what it's about. Or you might say, hey, that was really funny and I remember it and it doesn't make me want it at all. And one of the questions that I ask as a client is, well then, how is that the right use of my funds versus something else that I might, might be able to do? Should I be discounting my price? Should I be running a promotion, et cetera? And I think, you know, ultimately that's what we all strive for. And you never hit all of it all the time. Um, I think there's also gotta be a way to test this out and sort of scale to fail, mm -hmm. find ways to assess the stuff where the failures are actually constructive rather than destructive. And so that might be, trying it out with a few people on a qualitative basis. It might be quantitative testing. It might be doing a test market in Des Moines because, you know, there's not that many people in Des Moines and it's relatively isolated from some other areas. So you can actually try, fail, and then sort of work your way into what an optimal solution is. Okay, going back to your five tests. Yeah. Um, give us examples, if you have any in top of your mind, sure. of what are good examples versus bad examples of sure. those five tests. Sure. So if we think about uh, the Super Bowl ads this year, right? Yep. Everybody like talks about the Super Bowl ads. Um, so Mountain Dew came out with an ad, yep. right? With this little mutant creature mm -hmm. dancing around. And I guess the question I would ask is, um, what was the intention of that ad, right? Was it really to generate some positive goodwill towards a product that they were trying to launch and get out there? Or was it really just to get attention? Because it clearly got attention and got talk value, but I think there's an open question about how persuasive or positive it was for the target. And I go back to days, you know, uh, when Miller Lite was running some pretty uh, evocative ads many, many years ago. And they had an angry beaver ad with a, a life-size guy in a beaver suit and a chainsaw jumping around. And if you looked at the trade publications and what the creatives were talking about on that campaign, it was all about recall, right? They just wanted mm -hmm. people to remember the brand. The problem was it was negatively persuasive. It actually drove people away from the brand. Hmm. And I think that's one of the challenges when you start to get myopic and, and realize you're not necessarily solving the problem holistically, is you can have a really detrimental effect on the brand. And I, you know, I worked on creative when I was with SC Johnson on the edge business where, and, and I think, you know, touch wood, we did do quantitative testing and we assessed this stuff because we had an ad that was brilliant on four of the five criteria, but actually drove folks to our competitor. And, you know, good thing that we had animatics and that we went through the process because right. otherwise I would have spent tens of millions of dollars in media on something to build market share for evil Gillette. Um, and so that was a way where that, that sort of scaled attempt, hey, we're going to spend tens of thousands of dollars to run this test, actually saved us the big bet, which would have really done bad things for the business. And it, it took us a few more months to get the copy right. But by taking that time and doing it the right way, we we're actually able to build market share over time, build equity in the brand, et cetera. And it's one of the reasons why I like the idea of testing and assessing. And it doesn't always have to be quantitative, but there's got to be some feedback loop built into the process so that, you know, and this maybe gets to the other part of your question, how agencies and clients work together so that someone like me doesn't just say, oh, I like that, right? Because if it's really just, oh, I like that, well, who cares? I'm not the target audience most of the time. I mean, if you're going for a guy in his, you know, mid to late 40s with gray hair, yeah, I'm the target audience and my preferences probably matter. But in most cases, I'm not the target. Right. Do you think you're the target for that Mountain Dew ad? No, but even among people who are in the target, um, I think that there's an open question about whether it was persuasive and it's going to actually move the needle towards what they want. 
And, you know, as we, as we think about that stuff, I think, you know, there was another ad probably focused on the same target uh, in, the, in the Super Bowl for a candy bar company, right, that had a guy jumping out of an airplane, riding on a bull, whatever. And I turned to the millennial sitting next to me because uh, I'm geeky enough where I take notes on all the Super Bowl ads every year. Yeah. And I said, feels like they were trying a little too hard. And uh, the, the response was a two-word, very to the point, no duh. Yeah. Right. So that one was probably even less effective than maybe what Mountain Dew did. But I don't think uh, necessarily either of those in isolation is going to move the needle. The question for me is, where does either of those brands go from here? Did they use the Super Bowl endeavor to learn? And again, how is the conversation between the client and the creatives going? Um, because I've, I've been around this game long enough to see situations where one side or the other strong arms the partner and says, trust us. Right. And whether it's trust us, we'll make it up in production uh, or trust us. This is going to work or uh, listen to me. I'm the client. I'm the one cutting the check. Right. That imbalance is really very, very infrequently productive. Most of the time. And this, I think, comes to the the first part of your question. Most of the time, what works great for me is to keep people out of ivory towers, to keep people in a room around a table like this, collaborating and working together. Um, historically, I like mid-sized agencies because I like critical mass and enough talent there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also find that they tend to be a little bit more open with access to the creatives and creatives access to the client. Um, and I think that there's you know a lot of stuff that goes into making that collaboration work. Um, but that's where the magic happens. That's where good stuff happens. When everybody has got their sleeves rolled up, uh, we all recognize our particular specialties, but nobody's dominating, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Okay, so let's go back into, you mentioned testing. Um, Pillsbury was huge on animatics as a creative. Uh, That wasn't so fun. (laughs) Hold on, on. I'm going to dust the chips off your shoulder. (laughs) Um, How do you feel about about, uh, focus groups now? Because you hear pros and cons about, about that. I've never been a big fan of focus groups for creative. Um, I think focus groups have an inherent challenge, and it's just based in who we are as humans, right? The first person over the wall with an opinion will force kind of a choice among the other respondents Mm -hmm. in the room to either either agree or disagree. Um, But it's not nearly as instructive as, let's say, a different qualitative method, which might be comm checks. Right, where you're actually cycling through and you've got exposure to an individual and you ask them a very succinct set of questions. What was this ad about? Does this ad, you know, make you feel good or bad about this this copy? Uh, what would you tell a friend? How would you describe yeah. this, right? And you can get through those uh, in a matter of minutes and actually cycle through a whole bunch of consumers and iterate while you're going, right? So you may get through five of these and see a theme and say, hey, we got to take a pause and have the creatives in the room. And this is where that collaboration and sort of parking the egos comes in. Hey, what are we hearing? Well, this isn't working. Should we put another sketch in there? Should we put some different copy in there? Should we scrap it and bring a different idea out? Um, but I think that that idea, and it's almost an agile mentality of iterate and, and knock the kinks out and let's keep moving this forward, uh, is much, much better than a, a traditional focus group. Right? And I know the guys, um, thinking back to uh, a number of years ago where Gatorade used to say, you know what, we run so many focus groups, it's nearly quantitative. And yeah, you can solve it with that, but there's very few brands that have the, the budget to sustain that number of focus groups and that level right. of media spend and the ability to cycle through things at that level. And for most of us, you know, if you're minding your pennies, you want to make sure that whatever money you spend is, is worthwhile. 
So not a big focus group fan. No. Okay, good to know. Um, so how do you navigate that process between client and creative? Creative is saying, hey, we want something super, super crazy. Client saying, hey, we want something that super, super sells. That's super crazy. <laughs> so I always, I always think of it, in, in, and I always start from the standpoint of, look, there's an interface, and this is creative endeavors in service of commerce. And I try to be really upfront with people about that because um, there needs to be clarity on that. This is not art for art's sake, mm-hmm. right? I was married to a painter at one point, brilliant, talented individual. She would never do ads, right? Um, and if somebody has made the choice to be in an ad agency, uh, while they're on their job, they are doing creative things in service of commerce. And part of my job as a client is to understand that I am not the creative. I am not there to create those communications pieces, those bits client. of copy. I am, I am. And I, and I try to be then very clear about the parameters and the expectations. So I wanna have a conversation that says, look, ultimately if, you know, if we're trying to create something that is going to be utilized in a video sense, on television, online, through mobile ads, and complemented with print and out of home, and probably a few other derivative things as well, mm-hmm. I'm still gonna want that sort of campaign, that portfolio of creative output to engage the people I wanna reach, communicate the proposition, link it to my brand in a way that they recall that drives or persuades them, right? And, and those are my expectations. And I'm also gonna make sure that anybody on my side, on the client side, mm-hmm. who is going to provide feedback or input or contribute to that, understands their position. And that's not to specify the creative. It's to put the parameters and the guardrails out there. This is how our brand is positioned. You know, write a good brief. This is what the proposition is. This is who it's targeted as. This is, these are the reasons to believe behind it. And then putting those sort of limitations in place allow really talented creative people to explore all the different ways to deliver on those expectations. Because right? I think that creativity is actually spurred by some limitation. If you just say, create something, right, and there's nothing, right, I could, I could end up with anything. If, the, if there's no direction, any road will do. So if I can put some guardrails or parameters in place and, and make clear what the expectations are, then the exploration can happen. And I think that as a client, it's really, really important that we train ourselves and I'm not just thinking about me personally, but people who work with me and alongside me mm-hmm. to give feedback in a good way, right? I don't ever start a feedback sentence with, I like. Right. It doesn't matter. Is it effective? Is it on brief? Does it communicate? And ultimately, will the people we're trying to reach appreciate it and feed that back as well? So I think there's a progression here, and this is why I love the collaboration and I love to have people in a room together, because the more there's clarity and we sort of bang out and get to common assumptions on the front end, the easier it is for people to maybe come up with really wacky ideas, really unexpected mm-hmm. things, and that can be transformational, right? That can, actually, that can actually change the trajectory on a brand or on an experience or for a business. And that's where understanding how we work together creates tremendous opportunity, right? And at the same time, I don't want creatives who are coming in and selling an idea they have that's not necessarily applicable or doesn't fit in the parameters that we've laid out. And that's where, you know, we have to be in a position where we can have the open, honest dialogue and say, that's a brilliant idea and it doesn't apply here, right? I don't think what you're pitching is actually what we're trying to, what we're trying to accomplish right now. Let's park that idea. Let's maybe come back to it when it's more appropriate. 
And for me, the, the worst times in those relationships, whether it's a promo agency or PR agency, an ad agency, freelancers, whatever it is, the worst ones are where there's not enough trust right. and there's not enough sort of grounding for us to actually have those conversations. The best ones are the ones where literally somebody says, well, wait a minute, how might we do this? Right? How might we do this? What if? Mm-hmm. And other people in the room kind of go, huh, wow, never thought about that. Let's think about it. Yeah. Right? I remember a time, so early in my career, I worked at a company called Masterlock. Right? Masterlock sells padlocks, mm-hmm. right? Really sexy things, right? Um, and I ran the commercial industrial business, so even less sexy, right? <laughs> I did locks for my portfolio at school, so I get it. <laughs> um, when I started on that business, and this comes back to you know me loving growth, right? I was told at the moment they gave me a job, we're going to put you in charge of a business that if we ignore it, it grows 2% a year. If we throw money at it, it grows 2% a year. If we try to kill it, it grows 2% a year. We need more growth, and we have no idea how to do it. We think you're just crazy enough to get there. Now, the time I was working with Kramer Crassel in their Milwaukee office, mm-hmm. um, and we went through this same process that I was just talking about of, hey, who are we trying to reach? We did upfront research because there were some questions that we didn't know, and we came away with the insight that these little $20 to $50 pieces of hardware were actually heroic, mm-hmm. right? They were these little, little things that actually kept a door closed or a gate shut or an intruder out. Mm-hmm. And where the creatives went with that was, you know, all over the place. We had a forces of nature exploration. We had some other stuff. And ultimately where we landed, we licensed three superhero characters from D.C. Oh, wow. Right? So we got Superman, Batman, and Aquaman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I put these on my showcase profile because I'm still proud of them uh, all these years later. And the thing that was great was, you know, we used Batman to sort of convey if you're fighting crime, it helps to look the part because he's a badass. (laughs) Right, and we had some locks. Sorry, badass PG thirteen. Um, <laughs> I think you're allowed uh, to say that. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, but you know, we had we had a line of locks that were heavy security, and they looked it. And we had a, a new product line that was all brass, and we used Superman said not all crime fighters are made of steel. Mm-hmm. Right, and we had another one that was all about being weather tough and water resistant. And we actually we had to modify Aquaman at the time because he was too happy go lucky in all the official illustrations. And DC actually bought the artwork back from CK wow. to use because it was the first time they'd ever had a tough looking Aquaman. Cool. Right, that. Campaign. We then took it out in print and put it on T-shirts for guys in the trade and everything else. Um, we actually got press coverage of it because it was such a departure. And we laddered up to an emotional connection that resonated all the way through the supply chain and the value chain. So distributors, dealers, locksmiths, end users, they all got it. And all of a sudden, we tripled the growth rate on the business within wow. 12 months. That's great. And and so, you know, I think those are, those are the kinds of examples where, um, again... I would have never come up with the superheroes. I would have never come up with any of the ideas that the, the, the creative teams did. Um, but the fact that we were in the room and banging things around was was really wonderful, wonderful to experience. That sounds like a really good opportunity for them to work with you as well in that brainstorm jam. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. So credit to you. Being a good <laughs> client, that doesn't always happen like that. Well, and I think that's also part of it is, um, you know, I, I might say I don't like people who are in the ivory tower. I think... I think uh, particularly in an account management role within an agency, there has to be an ability to say to the client, this is not the right set of behaviors to get the most out of our team. Mm. 
right? And whether that applies to media buying or creative or any other endeavor. We've talked a lot about creative in this conversation. Mm -hmm. But I think that's where the account management role really shows its its worth mm -hmm. is when there's an honest ex set of expectations. And again, I talk about parameters for the agencies. Agencies can set those same kind of parameters for a client. Absolutely. And I think that when that's when that's done appropriately, again, that unlocks value. It's constructive. It's not destructive. And where you know vanity or insecurity gets in the way, that needs to be called, right? Because there are a lot of people who sit in my role, my types of roles, right? And you know, could be early in my career as an associate brand manager or a brand manager, or it could be VP of marketing or head of retail partnerships and innovation for BP, whatever it was. Um, if that vanity, if that insecurity hasn't been banged out, mm -hmm. um, it'll undermine. Uh, the ability to effectively use marketing. And personally, I mean, that's where I, I feel bad because I view marketing as my craft, right? I have spent 20 plus years honing this. I pay attention to it. I think it adds value. Um, and I take it pretty seriously. And yeah. I love it. I have fun. Yeah, same. But when I see people who don't treat it with respect or treat it as a way for them to just push their own personal agenda, it, mm. it's actually, it sort of offends me. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then by extension, I ask myself, how did they get this far? having not learned the lessons that they should have. If people want to contact you, how would they actually contact you? At uh, Luma or? So. Uh, Definitely through Showcase. Def I was going to say, the <laughs> first place to go is my Showcase profile. Exactly. Right? Um, and, uh, you know, I'm the only Gary Lancina on earth, so I'm easy to find on LinkedIn as well. Um, and uh, if somebody, you know, wants to get a hold of me, I would say go either of those two places. That's probably the best place to start. And, um, you know, uh, and then, yeah, let's get engaged. Let's start the dialogue and let's have some conversation. <laughs> I'm like, this is not a dating website. No, <laughs> not engaged in that. Bit. All right, let me rewind that. Let's actually start a productive conversation about whatever topic. Um, but I think the, the two places that I would say are best to, to track me down is uh, my LinkedIn profile and, uh, and my showcase.com profile. Okay, good. And any other projects coming up we should definitely look for? Um, well, right now I've actually been doing a lot of strategy work. Oh. Um, so, you know, at some point we may want to talk about kind of how that turns into creative output. Um, but at the moment, uh, a lot of what I'm doing with Luma Institute is getting people in front of audiences, actually telling our story, doing good case study work, engaging people uh, in productive dialogue about what the value proposition is, um, and actually creating a, an opportunity for our clients to, to voice the value rather than us just shilling on our own. Um, and I think that, that sort of space of third-party endorsement uh, and where that's going um, is kind of an intriguing thing because in an in a age of ever-increasing social media validity, mm -hmm. um, this idea of others substantiating what it is that you do uh, becomes really important. Like, for example, you know, uh, moms, new moms today, aren't listening to their moms. They're actually listening to their counterparts, other new moms. Mm -hmm. That is a fundamental and plate tectonic type shift for brands like Pampers or Huggies. Um, and I'm not sure that everybody has quite come to grips with that. But what becomes so valuable then, right? Obviously, we've been talking about mommy bloggers for a long time. But now there's this idea of who among my peers actually believes it in what it is that I'm contemplating or what it is that I'm pursuing. 
And the same thing can then be extrapolated and applied in a business-to-business -business sense, which is where Luma Institute is, right? We're serving, you know, big clients like uh, Arms of the Federal Government or Honeywell or Autodesk. And as other enterprises are thinking about, is this worthwhile? How do we catalyze and accelerate our ability to innovate? They're not going to ask us and they're not going to ask their moms. They're going to go look for validation from other similar organizations. Right. And so I think that's, a, that's an area that a lot of people may not be thinking of as a creative endeavor, uh, but there's an art to it. And there's a, a crafting of the content and a way to do it that goes right back to those five things I was talking about. Hey, is it engaging? Is it something I want to listen to? Right? Does it communicate the proposition? Do I tie that to the Luma brand? Will I remember it and talk about it in the future? And does it actually motivate me to take the next step? Um, and I think that uh, you know that's that's the stuff that I'm working on right now um, that I find really intriguing. You're a busy guy. Yeah. Wow. Well, this was fascinating. We can't Thanks. wait to have you back. Thank you. I appreciate so, it. I love Showcase, yeah. and I appreciate the opportunity to come in and have the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for your time. All right.